This is Beyond Belief Sobriety, a podcast and community for people who are seeking a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, thank you for spending some of your time today to listen to this episode. I hope it's a good experience for you, that it helps add a little extra to your stockpile of recovery capital. My guest in this episode is Dr. Daniel Hockman, a psychiatrist who specializes in treating people who struggle with addiction. We had an interesting conversation about the nature of addiction and recovery and the unique online treatment program that he developed called Self-Recovery. But before we get started, I would like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. If you're seeking a tangible way to maintain accountability and prove sobriety to loved ones, you have to try Soberlink. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, they've created a remote alcohol monitoring system that revolutionizes the way people document sobriety. The system includes a breathalyzer and uses artificial intelligence to display your test results in a calendar format, helping you analyze your habits and prove to yourself and others that you are, in fact, not drinking. It even has real-time results, facial recognition, and tamper detection, so no one will question the validity of your results. Soberlink and I have created a guide called Five Tools and Strategies for Those on a Secular Path to Recovery that you can find at Soberlink.com BBS. So if you're ready to take the next step in your recovery journey, mention the Beyond Belief Sobriety podcast when ordering Soberlink and you'll receive $50 off their device. And now, episode 261, Dr. Daniel Hockman, Self-Recovery. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Hockman, and to introduce him, I'll borrow heavily from his website, selfrecovery.org. Uh, Dr. Hockman is a psychiatrist who specializes in the treatment of addiction. He has worked in the addiction field and taught addiction in a range of clinical settings, including private addiction rehabs, outpatient addiction clinics, an academic rehab center, and programs offered through the Department of Defense and Veterans Affairs. He regularly speaks for addiction facilities, hospitals, and professional organizations to advance addiction care, and he's created an online addiction recovery program called Self-Recovery that we will learn about today. So welcome to Beyond Belief Sobriety. Dr. Hockman, it's nice to have you here. Very nice to be here, John. I thought a good place to start is to get to know you a little bit, uh, your background, and what got you interested in um, treating addiction, helping people with that problem. Yeah, so uh, probably uh, I, I feel like nearly everybody in this field has had you know their own brushings with addiction. Um, I, I don't have my own sort of tattered history as far as me going through you know a very uh, personal you know, struggle with it and, um, you know, getting to the brink of anything. Uh, mine has been closer to, I think, what uh, I, I would think is a very normal experience. A lot of friends and family uh, close to me, you know, have, have uh, been in that kind of situation that I just described. I, uh, I fell into the treatment of addiction more so out of curiosity for human behavior and the psyche, really. So, um, I entered psychiatry because that's what I'm so keenly interested. You know, why do we do what we do? Um, but what really interests me is why do we do things that are bad for us? Because, um, you know, entering into med school thinking, well, okay, everybody coming through primary care clinics, they're all coming for conditions that are lifestyle related. It all has to do with, you know, not exercising, not eating well, not complying with medications, not showing up for enough visits, not putting sunscreen on, you know, all these behaviors that we do or don't do that wind us, you know, up you know, needing surgeries or getting cancer and all sorts of things. So addiction for me kind of captures a lot of that in one spot. It's like we're definitely doing something that's not good for us. And that absolutely intrigues me. So I do not view it as, oh, well, that's just disgusting or despicable. Um, it really intrigues me. And so I've, I've been really drawn to the field because of the, um, the curiosity and the intrigue about it. And it's just so incredibly rewarding when you can help unlock things for people in that way. I've heard addiction described as 
uh, and and maybe you have a better definition for it, but would it be an addict, a behavior, an unhealthy behavior that is repeated and despite having negative consequences on one's life, they continue that behavior? Yeah. Well, that that's sort of, you know, NIDA, the, the government organization's pretty formal definition. You know, you, you pretty much got it there. Uh, and while that definition's okay enough, uh, I actually don't feel that that is very informative around how to think about it. To me, that's like a, a what description. So it describes what addiction might be, uh, but it doesn't describe how or why. And, and that's what I'm really interested in. And so um, the way I think of it as far as a definition is that it's a learned behavior of escaping intolerable distress. So my definition is very intentionally psychologically based. And so saying that it's a learned pattern is very intentional to try and help people understand this is something that forms over time. And there's a lot of conditioning and associations that happen so many times over and over again um, that train someone that that's a way out. It's a way to regulate. And what's, what's it regulating? The emotional distress. So there's always some driver that leads people to need that way of, you know, uh, dispelling, pausing, numbing, you know, the, the feeling that comes up. Sometimes that's an acute feeling. Sometimes it's a very long-standing one. Um, but the, the way I define it is to try and help people really think about all those things because describing the what with the definition that exists um, to me, you know, I've never really met anyone that hears that definition and, and then says, oh, yeah, okay, right. now, now I know what to do. <laughs> exactly. They're like, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> well, no, that makes tell sense. Me, tell me something new. You know, who came up with that? Like, duh. So, so yeah, you know, I keep going back to this thing, but, uh, but it's not very insightful. Yeah, I think that I think that's helpful to think of it in, in that way. And that leads me to my next question, I guess, because I, I I have become a little bit confused about the nature of addiction scientifically about what it is. And I'll tell you why. So years ago, and I've been doing this podcast since 2015, I had I had some doctors on and they were talking about addiction as a chemical reaction in the brain where you do a drug or a be, engage in a behavior and you get these spikes of dopamine in your brain. And this one particular doctor would tell me that, you know, we shouldn't really think about the substance we're addicted to. It's really dopamine that we're addicted to. It's this chemical in our brain. So I was thinking about addiction as being purely a physical problem in the brain that um, some people have and some people don't. But then it seems that um, over time, uh, more people in the recovery community were becoming interested in trauma. And talking about addiction being a response to trauma, a way of coping with trauma. And um, so I don't know, is it one or the other or both? Maybe you can fill me in on that. <laughs> yeah, all, all of these can be true at the same time. Okay. Let's maybe break a couple of those things down because you bring up you know a couple of interesting questions and points. Uh, one is... Well, let me back up and explain one way to think about science, because, you know, science can mean all sorts of things. I think of science as a process. It's a process of inquiry and having an actual method to it. You know, so you have a hypothesis and you can test the hypothesis. It's repeatable and recorded and all these things. So so science can really be anything and it can be applied to pretty much anything, even the arts. Um, so how do I think of the interaction between, like you say, dopamine or our behaviors or psychology? Um, so perhaps we can kind of lay a framework out for that so people listening can think of it um, in, in a really helpful way. So at the bottom, you have physics. So physics is like protons, electrons, gravity. So it's like, you know, those fundamental equations and, and atoms that we have that make up the universe, Okay as basic as like helium or, you know, hydrogen or, you know, like these basic elements. Okay. So you've got physics on top of physics rests chemistry. Okay. So all chemistry is, is physics, but it's in specific forms. So then you have organic chemistry, which is usually carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. Uh, so different varieties of carbon chains is what makes up pretty much human life or any life. Um, so, so that's physics on top of that chemistry, 
organic chemistry is a subset, right? Because you, you have chemistry all over the, the planet or the, the universe, but it's not all life form. Okay, so, so organic chemistry. And then within chemistry, then you start getting interesting things that rest on that. And, and that starts to become things that we can start to point our fingers at in like a, an anatomy book or things. So we're looking at nerves, right? So chemistry can make up cells and the nerves. It also makes up the compounds. So dopamine would be one of those, okay? So there are neurotransmitters that can either um, flow through the bloodstream. There are some that get sort of emitted off the end of a, of, of a nerve. So there's like axons and dendrites. Um, so, so this is still all the same, right? We're just, there's layers to peel back. And so on top of chemistry and those interactions, you have then psychology, okay? And that's why these things happen at the same time. Yeah. Psychological <laughs> things happen. Sure. And, and those are just, it's different verbiage and it's a different framework to use, but it's the same thing as saying chemistry is happening too. And then on top of psychology, then we finally have behavior. So, uh, so these things all rest on each other and they're, you know, they're not mutually exclusive, right? We have behavior that involves all the way down to physics, but they're not mutually exclusive then, right? They're happening at the same time. So I would going back now to what you said, yes, dopamine is absolutely involved in addiction. Uh, I just think it's foolish to describe it only as that because, you know, not just anybody listening, but even researchers, but you, you have to figure out, well, what the hell am I doing about the dopamine? Right. You know, we can't like turn up and down our dopamine with a switch. Right. Now, you know, yeah, you can go on these like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, d- dopamine washes and try and do <laughs> a bunch of like nothing and, and people try and do that. But it's sort of a silly way of trying to manipulate dopamine. I mean, instead we have to really make longstanding changes about the way we relate to our rewards and our pleasures. So uh, we're not necessarily trying to like immediately turn up or down certain things. Same thing with cholesterol. I mean, yeah, you you want your cholesterol under control, but you don't try and manipulate it day to day. (laughs) You know, you got to make some slow changes. Right. That makes sense. Uh, So that's how I think about it. You know, yes, dopamine. Yes. You know, there are addictive circuits, but, um, but, Functionally speaking, you know, the average person has to think of, you know, how do I change the way I'm thinking of things and how do I change my behaviors? Right. I, I thank you for that. That makes sense to me. I, I've had conversations with people where it's almost an argument where they say, no, it's not, it's not dopamine. It's this. It's, it's, well, it's actually both, maybe. Oh, yeah. And dopamine absolutely is the most implicated. But I mean, norepinephrine has some play there. Obviously, you know, endocannabinoids have, you know, and, you know, we have opiate receptors too. opiates don't just trigger dopamine, opiate, uh, opioid receptors are things in themselves that have pleasure. So it's not as simple as most people like to try and make it scientifically. Yeah, yeah. So uh, with that, with that being said, understanding what addiction is, and then what is recovery? Recovery to me then is then is that slow process of changing a couple major relationships um, again and again these are sort of the same thing but viewed from different angles. One is changing the way we relate to the objects of our addiction. Okay, so that could be drugs, alcohol, but it could be you know porn, shopping, internet, whatever. Um, so changing the way we re- relate to using the object of our addiction. And then the other part that's sort of the same thing, but a little bit deeper is just how do we relate to the idea of pleasure? Mm. Um, So recovery to me is reorienting all of that. Wow. And to do that, you've got to kind of go back to the beginning usually. Wow. Interesting. I never actually thought about it that way about reorienting, reorienting your way of thinking about pleasure. I never, I don't know why it just seems like it would make sense, you know, that, 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 that's what you would do. Um, but I'd never thought of it in that way for whatever reason. That is very interesting. And I think, I think it's very useful to think of it in that way. If, if, um, you know, I, I think that for a lot of us that have become addicted to something, in my case, it was alcohol, that the addiction was a response to to um, wanting to change um, 
a feeling or, you know, or I, I think I was almost like using it as medicine in a way to, to medicate some feeling or some harm that was done. Um, and, or just shutting off the brain, just, just changing the brain. Uh, and, and I think it, I think it was pleasurable. Otherwise I wouldn't have been doing it. Would I, uh, would any of us have been doing it? You got it. Yeah. So I think everybody can understand pretty immediately that, you know, when we use something that it's to help numb or, or escape, you know, that, that is something that people pretty immediately would agree to. Um, and much like your case, I really haven't met anyone that requires the level of like a, any kind of treatment where there isn't something that they're trying to get away from. Uh, and it could be as serious as like you mentioned earlier, you know, some big, you know, trauma or long, like a long series of trauma or neglect. It can also be as minor as boredom or, you know, just not happy with your place in life, not happy with your career or marriage. Um, so, uh, but whatever that is, right. How, however diagnosable or however serious, um, nevertheless, I think everybody that ever struggles with addiction has something that they're wrestling with. Um, okay. So fine. Right. But, uh, yeah, that, that's why I like to draw attention to the pleasure part because it, it's sort of inherent and implicit, but, but it does need to almost be stated so people can realize, okay, yeah, I'm, let's just pretend you know, you're having a, you know, a, a drink to try and escape your woes. But why do I drink, though? Okay, we all don't want to be in the midst of, of our pain, but what does the addiction offer? It's not just escape, right? It, it is that there is also the idea that there's going to be pleasure at the end of it. And that's, that's the whole reason that that's the object of choice. There is pleasure involved or else we wouldn't be doing it. Kind of reminds me of something that smart recovery has. And I don't remember what they call it. They have acronyms for everything. Every, all their tools, they have an acronym and, and the one, this acronym, I cannot remember, but basically it is that um, to help you um, maintain motivation to stay in recovery, um, you should maybe have some sort of a, um, creative outlet some some like a hobby or some, something that that you enjoy doing to fill your time that i guess uses your brain in a different way i wish i could remember what they called it but that kind of sounds to me like a way of learning a new way to experience pleasure maybe yeah yeah so you know there there's a lot of depth to this so yeah i think on the surface uh, I would call that sort of a transferring. So in the same way you can transfer an addiction to something safer, you know, if you go from heroin to Netflix, that's like <laughs> that's a very, very good, that's a favorable transfer, right? Um, so, you know, anytime you can go to something less harmful, thumbs up. You good know, deal. Good, yeah. good on you. you know, I, I do not like those sort of, you know, purists that right. say like, oh, it's just got to be nothing now. No, I mean, <laughs> if you're transferring to some, candy bars or, you know, a, a ton of people in recovery transfer to the gym, right? Yeah. I think yeah. That's good. That's kind of how most people go, you know, that that's, that's just one of the conventional uh, transfers. Um, but there is also then like you bring up this transfer of pleasure. So uh, um, not just thinking of, you know, what, what I do to escape with a candy bar, but um, what am I transferring to for pleasure? And, and it may be the same thing. It's just a different way of thinking about it. So, um, yeah, you know, it might be that it's exercise, but it could be all kinds of things, like you say, a hobby. And a hobby certainly is more in line with how I would try and guide somebody because that's not looking for these sort of quick boosts of pleasure. Those are short-lived. They're shallow. They're often empty. Um, there are long-standing forms of pleasure. So there are different types of pleasures. Um, and, and the long-standing versions are always process-oriented, meaning, um, you know, a candy bar doesn't quite have a process to it, um, but a hobby might have a lot of that process. It's it's a craft. It involves, you know, the planning and working through and going through different iterations and getting better at it and, you know, really crafting a skill, making, you know, something into a fun art. So, uh, so that's a different kind of pleasure and it literally does use different chemistry to it just to, you know, bring back that framework. So there's different chemistry involved with that. Um, and 
functionally, we feel that in a different way. It feels like something more whole. Um, and one of the barometers I use is, you know, it, it generally will score higher on how proud we are of ourselves. You're not going to be proud of yourself with some short-term pleasure, you know, um, but you will be proud of yourself if you're becoming competitive in an area that you're proud you've, you know, gotten better at. Kind of building um, self-esteem. So that's a different pleasure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It builds esteem. It builds self-efficacy and confidence. And uh, out of that comes security and, um, you know, a, a feeling of wholeness and, um, you know, self-assuredness. So, uh, so, yeah, very different things happen when we think of what am I doing and how, how does it make me feel pleasure? Is it, is it the short-lived pleasure? Is it a long-lived pleasure? Am I proud of this or is this just some temporary kind of patch? Uh, those are all very, very different things. Okay. So tell me this. Um, you, you, you work with treatment centers and you speak at uh, treatment centers and so forth. Have, how, where are we right now? Um, ha, has there been much evolution or change? Are we improving with how we deal with treating people who are needing to recover from addiction? Um, how's that coming along? I would say yes, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think the fact that you're even doing this is reflective of something larger happening. Um, it's, it's cool to see you doing this, and you know, I wish there was more of it, but I think – uh, I think there is, you know, more and more by the month. So, um, yeah, I think to be specific, I think more and more places are becoming very trauma oriented. Um, so that's a good evolution where it's not just kind of a character lot, characterologic flaw that, you know, you're this, I mean, I'm heavily paraphrasing here, but you know, you're just this dumb idiot who keeps repeating <laughs> right, a bunch right. of mistakes. Yeah. Um, you've got to just be, you know, your soul needs to be saved and, and you need to pray and, you know, you'll, you'll eventually be redeemed. Uh, you know, we've come a long way and now people understand more psychologically minded ways of thinking about it. So trauma has been a more recent sort of version of that. Um, to me, that's still just like <laughs> a baby step towards that because there are tons of people who don't have what they would consider a trauma. Uh, even by any definition. I mean, of course, we can get loose about the definition of a trauma, but even with a liberal, loose definition of trauma, there are many people that go to rehab and would not identify with that. Uh, so it clearly is missing the mark for quite a few people. Um, and it also doesn't quite capture how addiction even works. So you can have all the trauma you want, and, and that is not necessarily a pathway to addiction. So... Uh, having adversity, having major depression, panic disorder, you know, ha whatever kind of badness you want to stack, that doesn't then um, lead in some direct way to addiction. I would call it a clear setup. It clearly predisposes the person. Um, but the treatment centers to me are still missing, you know, the, the rest of that pathway. It doesn't help people necessarily come away understanding Okay, well, just because I've been through some tough stuff, you know, why am I addicted, though? Because there's plenty of people who have been through some bad shit, and they somehow are fine. So, um, so it doesn't provide full answers to me yet, but, but good on everybody for finally kind of opening up at least to the most severe of trauma and understanding that, you know, early life adversity especially um, will linger and, and predispose people. Um, Specifically, too, I think there's been a lot of progress as far as like what you address, that uh, there are a lot of secular people out there. Times are changing. Um, and so a lot of people are not looking, you know, to use God per se, maybe spirituality. Um, maybe they do want to reflect deeply about what life means, but they're not necessarily religious in the uh, in the conventional sense. And so. Uh, I think there's been a lot of softening up there. I certainly see, you know, almost every center softening up what they're considering, you know, a higher power to be. Um, but yeah, and then treatment centers are using more medications, like with detox, especially. Um, but they still are falling short, often not discharging people on medications geared for addiction. Uh, instead, they might 
discharge you with like an antidepressant, but not necessarily, um, you know, ant abuse or, um, you know, naltrexone or something. Okay. So, um, how interesting. So yeah, a lot of progress, uh, but, but, uh, there's a ways to go and there's a ways to go for everybody, of course, but you know, there's a ways to go. The shame is there's a ways to go for most treatment centers, um, with areas that already exist and are proven to be very effective that's on the table that's not being used. Okay. Um, I think, I think I agree with you. I, I think that there has been progress when I think about it. So I've been involved in the recovery community since 1988. So um, for a long, and I tell you the game changers has been a couple of them, but for one thing, the access to information that we have now uh, is just is, has changed everything so that we can connect with people that are outside of our own geographic areas, you know, um, and we can get information that we wouldn't have had before. So when I got sober in 1988, um, there was AA. That's all I knew, you know. That's all, that, and you had to pick up the phone and go go get, get to the meeting and so forth. So that that has been a game changer, just the, the access to information. Yeah, and and as far as you knew in '88, then. You know, what was there any other reference you feel like you could have accessed? I mean, would it have been normal to look in the library or? Actually, I did go to the library. Okay. <laughs> I okay. did go to the library. What I, did you find? Well, I was very, I, I, when, when I was at that point in my life, I was like, I couldn't believe that I was, um, I was only 25 years old, but I could not believe that I um, didn't realize I had a problem. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just, through me. So I went to the library and I read everything I could get my hands on about alcoholism. And the one, actually one person that stood out at that time was Marty Mann. She came out in a lot of different books uh, that, that, and reading about alcoholism. One thing I remember looking at was a graph where it showed, um, it was kind of like a, a graph like this, where you um, you're down, you're down here and, and, bottom land <laughs> and then you start and you start getting better so i can't remember exactly how it went i guess it, it went like that or that and i just and i just anyway i yeah so i did i did i did go to the library and i, I and i and i checked stuff out but as far as accessing help at that time it was the only thing i knew was 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 aa only thing i knew i think there probably was some other there could have been some other programs out there i think that rational recovery was kind of starting in the 1990s uh, but it really wasn't, um, you know, that that well known um, in our circles. So, yeah, so that that has changed a lot, and um, I think this pandemic has been has 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 done a lot as, as well. Uh, I mean, it's been awful. You know, uh, there's been uh, probably more people suffering from addiction and dying from overdose than than we've had in, in forever. Uh, so, in that in that respect, it's been terrible and awful. But on the other hand, um, the recovery community has figured out a way to connect with each other online in, in more meaningful ways than we have before. And we're connecting with people outside of our own communities that are talking about recovery differently than what we might be hearing in our own local areas. So it's opening us up to new ideas, different ways of thinking about recovery. That and this um, movement that I actually got involved in of um, peer support of, the, of, of actually learning about, um, you know, taking, taking an exam and getting um, certified through my state as a peer specialist, peer support specialist. And that movement has, has taken off so that people in my state here in Missouri who have gone through that program, we have meetings and we talk about, um, you know, helping people in their recovery by meeting them where they are and understanding that there isn't just one way. <laughs> so I, I, I guess in that sense, yes. In the other sense, I would say I was, I was speaking with Joanna Conti on a, on a podcast episode the other day, and she has a business where she is encouraging um, treatment centers to uh, measure their outcomes. And she's having a hard time getting treatment centers to do that. Um, yeah. And so, in that respect, I think that it would be, I think we can see more progress there. It would be, I think it would be nice if, if treatment centers could be more accountable to saying that, you know, this is actually what we're able to measure as far as, you know, what happens to people when they leave treatment. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's a whole issue. I mean, that that's all. Oh boy. Not easy. Started there. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I mean, you first of all have to come up with a very standardized process, you know, so like what are the checkpoints there and exactly what is that, um, uh, being measured and, and, and how, right. Is it a phone call? Are you bringing them in? Are you doing a urine test, like doing a hair, you know, what, what, uh, you know, so how accurate are the results that you're getting? How self-selected is it? You know, so does a treatment center choose that? Is it, you know, a a random sampling? Uh, Are they getting to report this data or is it a third party? Right. So there's a, there's a bunch of things. I just see it totally non-standardized. And so to be honest, if I see a treatment center say, you know, Oh, we have a 96% success I, first of all, that's unrealistic, but second, um, what's the population you're seeing? You know, so if you see a bunch of my cohort, doctors have extremely, well, we have high rates of addiction, but we have really high rates of success. That's true, isn't it? We don't want to lose our license. You know, we're, we're all type A neurotic people and we, we are scared. You know, I was amazed. I think it's like 90 some percent, a huge percentage of them, um, stay sober, but they have, if if their license is at stake, they have to go through this very rigid process of keeping their license to practice. So it's just an example of, you know, depending yeah. on your population, if you're in urban, remote, like it's, it's just all, you know, if you're taking insurance, not. So there's not a standardized process to be measuring. And until we have something, you know, more serious, uh, th- these numbers don't mean a whole lot to me, actually. Okay. Yeah, and I've always often wondered what you know what you really consider success anyway. And I remember asking Joanna that, and and I think I think it was like um, being sober for you know X number of days, I guess after after you leave treatment. And and she also mentioned that the problem is just getting people to respond. That the only people that will respond are the ones that are sober. <laughs> right. right. So, so well, so yeah, you, you get that. Even the people who respond, are they telling the truth, right? right. Addicts are often, you know, people pleasers. And so, Oh, I got a call. You think you have to please. You also think, Oh, if I don't answer this correctly, somehow my work will find out or you'll let the, my probation officer know or something, you know, so there's, there's fear and reasons to, you know, to distort. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then outright just wanting to answer yes enough times or no, whatever the question is, just to get off the phone because you don't want them to try and convince you to come back to treatment. You didn't have a good experience. So there's all kinds of reasons that these are very invalid unless they're being you know truly gathered in objective manners. Um, so, yeah, just that, that's why I just – I don't even bother because I, I whenever I, I – when I read a study – I am very careful with how the study was designed, the methods, the statistical um, methods used as well. And then I look at the conclusions and usually it doesn't match the level of uh, uh, rigor of of how the study was done. White papers do not have to go through peer reviewed processes. So there's a lot of things and reasons why, why I say what I do. It's not because I'm pessimistic. It's just this stuff has not reached the level of peer reviewed medical journals that look at other conditions and things where this stuff has already been really ironed out, you know, exactly how you measure. uh, That's what it sounds like. It's yeah. It sounds like it's a completely different, you know, it's completely a different thing than like measuring how successful a cancer treatment might be or something like that. So it's a totally different, um, all game there. Right. And you, and you raised another question, which isn't just applicable to how do you measure these things, but you know, we have people who are, uh, first of all, there's a set of addictions where you wouldn't abstain, right? So if it's like a sugar, food, sex, um, you know, you also, some people say, be, you know, addicted to, to work and exercise right. and that's, that's a whole nother debate. But, but even if you say the more accepted ones, right, that you can be addicted to sex, something like that. Uh, well, a healthy person, you know, if they're in a romantic relationship, should not be abstinent from sex. And so, uh, so you run into issues there, right? And then um, the other issue you run into as far as measuring this stuff is, well, what if the person, so with like heroin, I think everyone could agree, like abstain. That's like under, under almost no circumstance, could you make a case that that, that, that using some of that is at all healthy, but, uh, but alcohol, well, now we're in a good debate, right? Even if you've had a really bad past with alcohol, um, there are enough people that learn to moderate and handle themselves well and drink on occasion. 
for a wedding, for some kind of ceremonial thing, for, you know, in a controlled way with people to connect, uh, that it's not entirely clear exactly what you want to make the gold star. Interesting. Right. So, and, and so there's all kinds of reasons like those that just muddy it even more than just was the study design. Sure. Good. Yeah. Sure. So tell me what motivated you to start um, self-recovery? Was there a need that you, you saw that needed to be met? You know, it, well, so in medical school, I remember thinking, well, most conditions have to do with, you know, overeating, not exercising enough. Two thirds of Americans are over, uh, overweight. Why do we have the primary care doctors explaining over and over to everybody, you know, how to, how to, you know, eat and exercise. And then, then I grew up a little, I realized, wait, there's some deeper things going on and just, you know, calories in calories out. Uh, but then when I became really, really captured by this intrigue around addiction, the, the same idea came up. Well, we're having to do all this heavy lifting. People come in to any kind of treatment setting. So it could be rehab, but it could also just be an outpatient therapist, could be self-help or whatever. But um, people are accessing information often that's flat out wrong or that really has a lot of gaps in it. You know, th- there should be some way that someone can reach a, a very easy to access sort of, you know, process that helps them understand everything from the beginning. And you don't have to wait and keep going to, you know, a therapy visit once a week, or you don't have to spend a fortune or go away to rehab or, you know, like there's, there's so much that people can do to work on themselves and understand what the hell is addiction? Why am I doing something that's so bad for me? Um, okay, even if I do understand it's from some kind of pain underlying this, well, wh- what do I do about that? Things that, like we talked about, the pleasure. There, there are already so many amazingly effective methods for these things. So, you know, I'm sitting in my office treating one person at a time. My practice got full fairly quickly, fortunately, but bad for other people. And so that, you know, I have a good reputation here. People call after they've, you know, failed different treatments and things. And so to have to turn people away feels really crappy as a psychiatrist. I mean, and and when, you know, you, you hear their call, you, I call everybody back who calls and you talk to them and they say, you know, Oh, this and that, well, please, you know, can you, can you take me, you know, I really think, you know, it sounds to me like you'll be able to help because I've been through this and that to have to turn people away who you know you can help, but then you also worry that they're going to go somewhere else that doesn't still address the very thing they're calling you because they think you can help. It feels really crappy. And so that's then when I got this kind of itch, like I, I really should put this in some methodical program that anybody can access. And so um, that, that was how it kind of went for me. Okay. And what, what's behind it? What's, is it, is there, is there a certain, um, a particular mode of therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy or something like that? And that's the only one I know, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, so the way I explain is it's, it's all the most effective psychological strategies woven together. So it's all seamless. So you don't necessarily say, okay, now we're going to do cognitive behavioral (laughs) therapy. Okay. Now we're going to do like motivational enhancement or behavioral activation. Like it's, it's, it's just seamless. And so it feels very just comfortable and natural. So you, you go through some sort of more, I'd say superficial kinds of things that you would go through to me, most treatments or rehabs are superficial. So, you know, there is, some learning around, okay, what are my triggers? Um, you know, what, what does a relapse prevention plan look like? Stuff like that. And, you know, explaining how addiction works, but it gets very deep. And so it's just this really slow process easing into addressing the underlying issues and like the reorienting to pleasure, also reorienting to how we deal with emotional distress. So, so it gets, you know, it starts off, oh, okay, yeah, you know, it's okay. And it just gets deeper and deeper. Interesting. And so the, the whole idea and the thing I'm most proud of is, you know, people come into it for addiction, right. but they come out of it incredibly different people oh, yeah. who just relate to the world in a very comfortable way where not just the idea of addiction is like, okay, you know, it like, seems silly now. Like, I, you know, of course, I don't need this thing. And you, right. you, and you become 
in great mastery then of like, how do I even operate as a person? You start to really wake up and realize just, just how you work as a person. And so, you know, when you see the game you're playing from such a distance, so many steps ahead before it happens, it, it, it really gets so much easier. And, and, and so that's what I want for people is, you know, just it doesn't need to be this lifelong uphill battle. Um, you know, if you learn the right ways of thinking about the whole thing, that informs then, okay, then that guides what do you do about it. And if you do the right things about it and you don't have gaps in the treatment, um, it, it actually is, is, I'd say, the natural default becomes a healthy lifestyle. Not not a battle where then you know you think like the, my natural self is addicted, right? And every day is then this like uphill thing, and I gotta hang on tight. Um, I like to change what the default natural case is. For, okay, for people. that sounds really interesting. Um, so is there? I, I imagine that so it's an online thing, and so people are doing self work. Is there also uh, any sort of a community aspect to it, or is there something the program is that even important to have? It absolutely is. So, so yeah, most of the program is, you know, learning through video lessons. Uh, there's music incorporated with those that help, uh, you know, really identify and emotionally sort of attune to, to what you're taking in. Uh, there's exercises after each one. So those might be kind of to reflect on uh, what you do. It might be to reflect on your past. It might be to, um, uh, work through some, some sort of plan, um, identify things, hold accountable to things. So there's, there's all kinds of exercises meant to then integrate what you're learning, which is a, a big important part, right? You can't just learn information. So you have to practice and integrate it. Uh, and then, um, yes. Yeah, so then there's forums, there's discussions. There are also weekly peer facilitator led groups. Oh, cool. Um, so much like you're certified that we, we have them led by only, uh, certified peer specialists. Um, so that's included in there. Um, and, and I'll just add too that, you know, this is not necessarily meant to be the only thing someone does. Right. Usually, usually it is, but it could very well be done on top of, you know, a, a, a doctor's prescription. It could be done after rehab. It could be done alongside AA. It could be, you know, it, it's not to say, you know, it's got to be only done in this way, but it's, it, most people use it as standalone, but it, it, yeah, many people layer it you know, with other services. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I will say most people actually don't use the, the group, um, even though it's included, you know, I, I don't charge extra or anything for it. Um, so I think a lot of people, it tells me, um, because it, you can also enter those groups anonymously. You don't even have to turn your screen on, you can, you know, hide your name. Uh, so that tells me that, uh, most people are wanting to keep it, um, private and, and want it to be their own kind of personal thing they do on their own time. And they don't really want to even be public about it, even if they're anonymous, that they, they just want to work through it as a very personal thing for people. And they kind of want to keep it that way. And that's what I like about the program too. That's part of the design is not just, okay, let's put it online. Cause then it's like easy for anybody to reach, but it's, uh, it's, it's something that became more and more evident in its utility was, um, People want to be very private, often, you know, very discreet. Um, and the other thing is, you know, people don't want to necessarily, they, they don't think of their problem as reaching the severity of, you know, this acute treatment. They, they like the idea of something that's um, easier to, to engage with that is, uh, is not quite as formal. You know, it's something um, that just feels more natural to them to, to try and learn about themselves um, rather than go into uh, you know, more formal treatment. I love that. Um, whenever I, whenever I learn about something new like this, I kind of, I, I do, I do a little transport back in time and imagine myself as a 25 year old in 1988. And if I would have had something like this, I would have loved something like this. Cause back then I was told that I couldn't do anything about this by myself and that I was going to be messed up for the rest of my life. And I was going <laughs> to mm-hmm. have to go to these meetings. Um, but Yes, I, 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 I am the personality type that would have preferred having just my having just being on my own. You know, if I had some questions, I can ask, but to learn about myself and read, I was the guy that was going to the library trying to figure things out. 
So I can understand why why that would be popular and that, why people would like that. Um, also, for me, I have learned over time that I don't necessarily have to be in recovery for the rest of my life. And that's one thing I like about um, smart recovery, for example, is there's an exit plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like you, you can move on with your life now. Yeah. I, 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 it's so important, right? I mean, you, you really have to, you're, you're, you know, kind of a, a alerts and red flags should go up whenever you find anything that says there's no exit. Button. I know, that's not good. Uh, that's know, not least, good. Yeah, there at least has to be some graduation. Let's yes. put it that way. I mean, true, there's a lot of processes where, you know, you're never done, I don't know, let's say like exercising, right? Like, it's not like you get to finish exercising and now I'm like, just as a human fitness, being, you know? I mean, you're never done learning and growing as a human being. That's that, that's going to go on forever. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to get drunk or something if I don't, you know, do these things. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you should be able to graduate an addiction program or, you know, whatever your plan is. Um, and, yeah, it doesn't mean you stop working on yourself emotionally, psychologically, behaviorally. But it means you graduate beyond just you know, hanging on for dear life with addiction and that you graduate so that, I don't know, say you become more spiritual, you know, maybe the next phase is you're, you're more spiritual or you're trying to engage more with your community or you're trying to uh, grow deeper relationships with people or more intimate with your partner. Or, you know, the, there's a bunch of things to graduate into that are still going to help your sobriety, right? But they're not calling it out day after day after day after day that, okay, you know, I'm still this addict, you know, I am an alcoholic still, and I, you know, I still am in this battle and I could slip at any moment. That's to me, a sort of fear-based reactionary model versus proactive, like, Hey, I'm, and I'm coming for you. I'm going to get spiritual. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get there. I can't today yet, but you know, I got to clean up my act, but to, to have this grander vision of who you can become and be proactive and even aggressive towards that. Um, yeah, it should graduate. Um, I really think that what you're doing is the future of um, addiction treatment. I honestly do that, um, that approach. Um, it just seems that it gives more, um, oh, respect, I guess, to the individual. And it's just, it's, it's, yeah, I like, I like it. I like, I like what you're doing. Um, that I see other things going on too, that I, uh, what you're doing, I, I can relate to so much better. It's not as technical as some other things what I'm thinking about is some, someone has an app out there. It's like a social media app for people that are in recovery and they're designing an artificial intelligence, com- intelligence component to this app so that when people are communicating on it, the artificial intelligence is going to detect whether or not that person is close to a relapse and then there's going to be like an intervention on that person, and I'm thinking, wow, that that's that's the future. But it, I guess, but that seems that's it's hard for me to feel comfortable with that. Although I can feel comfortable with what you're doing. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the reason is what you're talking about there maybe is helpful, and I'd have to see you know which one that is. I've, I've seen different, but, but but just from the sounds of it, you know, the the I think the the alert going off to you is this is but a sliver of what can be helpful, right? To, to have a slap on the wrist, you know, whap, when, when, when you don't use the right words or, you know, there, there's all kinds of things. If you don't, if you're not social enough, if you're not moving around or if you're not waking right. up at regular times, like there's a million things we can hook ourselves up to and get all these feedbacks from, but yeah, those are just slivers, right? That, that's why I also, you know, even mock my own program, right? It, it includes some just common sense, superficial things, but, but, because yes, you have to cover the basics. Not everyone is caught up to speed with that, but you got to take people to distance. You know, if it's just alerting you, all that is to me is just electronic accountability. Okay. Well, accountability is important, but as you're starting to sense too, with self-recovery, ultimately you have to be accountable to yourself, not, not your wife, not your friend, not some codependent partner. You know, you, you don't even want to be accountable to your recovery coach or your sponsor. You don't want to be uh, accountable even to just your watch or whatever, you know, you ultimately want to be accountable to 
the the you you know that you are accountable to who you would like to become for you and and that's just a different level but but you know people have to be interested enough to get there yeah well thank you so much again uh is there anything that you would like to talk about before we sign off that that maybe i didn't bring up uh about about what you're doing with the the program Oh no! Uh, I, you know, I think just to just to say, I, I like what you're doing here, and I think um, it's just cool to to reflect on you know that that our minds and our work is, is meeting in this way, and and it kind of goes back to your question, you know, what's changing or is is there improvement in the field? And you know, here's living proof. I think uh, I think something I want listeners to know is that you know wh- whether you're listening to just this single podcast or whether you're, you're doing something else, you know, sample what's out there. there. There's no one right way. There's no one path. Everybody feels like there is because you meet someone that says, oh, here's how you get better. You got to take this medication or you got to take, you know, do this form of therapy or you got to go to this rehab or, you know, and, um, no, there's not one way. Everybody is different. We all need different things addressed. And, um, yeah, I try my best with the program, but it's not for everybody. If you need someone, you know, to, to grab you by the hand and take you somewhere, you know, my program's not going to do that. Right. So it's, it's, it's for a lot of people, but it's not for everybody. Your podcast, you know, for a lot of people, but not for everybody. And so whatever you're finding and listening to and drawn to what, whatever you're reading, um, just, just consider it, you know, as part of the sampling. And when you see something that resonates, yeah, we'll get more of it then, you know, pursue that. And there's probably a lot more to explore around whatever is grabbing your attention. And if other things feel like it's forced and it doesn't resonate, there's other stuff out there. So that's what I hope just, you know, to encourage people to follow what is resonating to them. Well, thank you for that. So I will post links uh, to your website, selfrecovery.org, and also some of the I mean, you're all over the internet. I'm going to post some links to some of the other interviews that you've done as well, because there's, you've, you've got a lot of great information out there. And one thing I would point out too, is the blog is actually really, really good on your site too. There's some good articles on that blog. So I don't know if you've written those or other people writing them, but you should write some more. I don't let anybody else write them. I get emails all the time. You know, you probably got stuff too. People want to put ads on your site. They want to write a a blog article for you because, you know, then it's going to have all the links back to their, you know, have so nope none of that on my forgot well it's good stuff it's only my bad all right well thank you thanks again i really appreciate it well thanks a lot for having me that's another episode of beyond belief sobriety thank you for listening if you would like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions head on over to patreon.com slash beyond belief sobriety or become a member of our youtube channel if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website, beyondbeliefsobriety.com, and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.